I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. All of us at times have difficulty getting along with somebody. I've always felt that I was a pretty easygoing person uh, by nature and sort of easy to get along with and could be friends and be befriended by almost anyone. And uh, I think in order to humble me, about five or six years ago, the Lord brought a couple of people into my life that I found it almost impossible to be around without getting annoyed and irritated. And the harder I worked on it, the worse it seemed to get. And you probably have people like that in uh, your life. Maybe, uh, maybe your spouse is married to somebody like that. And uh, you read the uh, Statesman last week. You saw a cover story in the daybreak section of personality conflict in the office and how to handle that and tips for kind of resolving that because that's such a common feature of everyday life, both in the home, in our neighborhoods, and in our offices, is conflict with others. That's really what the whole book of Philippians is about. It's Paul's uh, teaching to us on how to get along with each other, how to maintain unity and peace, sense of oneness among us despite our disagreements. As David pointed out last week, the specific issue in the Philippian church was a conflict between two women, Euodia and Syntyche. We know from chapter 4 that these women were strong women. They were leaders probably in the women's ministry there at Philippi. They were gifted. They're uh, mentioned or listed as co-laborers in the gospel. And we have no idea of what the conflict between them was, but there was some sort of breach between them, some sort of difference of opinion perhaps on, on how some area of ministry ought to be run, some other sort of quarrel between them. And this rift between these two gifted women was threatening the unity of the church there in Philippi. Evidently, some people were tending to take sides in this dispute and the harmony of the church was being affected as a result. And so Paul writes the letter of Philippians to this church to tell us how to respond to situations like this. And as you remember from the early part of chapter 3, particularly verses 3 and 4, Paul's solution to this kind of conflict is not that you see eye to eye on everything. That the solution to this kind of conflict is not always to come to some agreement Agreement of that kind may be impossible. You may persist to your dying day with a difference of opinion about how something ought to be done. Paul says the secret to unity in the body is not agreement, but a mutual commitment to serve and to love. That's the same mind that we are to have toward one another, the same mind that animated Jesus Christ, who is willing to set aside his rights for our sake. Paul says that's the key to oneness in any relationship, whether it's in marriage, whether it's a relationship with our children, with our parents, with people that we work with. The key to unity is not agreement, but a commitment to serve and a willingness to set aside my rights for the greater interest of the relationship. In fact, a greater concern for their needs than my own needs. And that's what the letter of Philippians is all about. So the general thrust of this book is how to make peace, how to be a peacemaker, how to get along with others. Now, the paragraph we want to look at today, verses 12 through 18, is a fairly simple outline. Paul gives us a command in verse 12 and tells us how to carry it out in verse 13. Gives us a second command in verse 14. Gives us three reasons to obey it in verses 15 and 16. And then gives us an example of the obedience to this command in verses 17 and 18. Let's begin with verse 12. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This verse begins with a little word, so then, or therefore, and this indicates that Paul is still talking about the same issue in this paragraph. Therefore, he says, on the basis of what I've taught you in verses 1 through 11, on the basis of the example of Jesus Christ, I want you to get about the business of obeying and imitating this lifestyle that I've set out for you. So we're still talking about the same issue. And he begins by commending the Philippians. He says, you have always obeyed me. Paul was an apostle. He spoke with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And what he had seen in the Philippians was a ready willingness to respond to the truth and to obey it and to put it into practice. And this delighted Paul. As you get more familiar with the letters of Paul, you will see a difference in tone in almost every one of the letters that Paul wrote. Letter to the Romans, for instance, a church he'd never visited and written to people he did not know as more detached and clinical. Contains great uh, theology, but you don't sense the warmth in, in that letter as you do in others. The same is true of the letter he wrote to the Colossian church, again, a uh, church that he had not visited. You get to letters like the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the Corinthian church, you find that there is a tone of rebuke. There is a sternness in those epistles because he needed to confront them with issues of truth and righteousness. But when you come to the letters he wrote to the Macedonian churches, the churches in northern Greece, the letters to the church in Thessalonica and the church in Philippi, you detect a completely different tone. There's a, there's a tone of delight and pleasure and joy in these epistles because those churches in northern Greece were uniquely responsive to Paul and to his ministry, and it was a delight for him to minister among them. Speaking on behalf of the staff and the elders, I can say the same is true for us. This is the spirit that we have sensed in you as a fellowship, a teachability, a responsiveness to the truth, an eagerness to understand the Scriptures and to put it into practice, and it makes it a delight for us to serve as shepherds in your midst. We experience the same joy and delight that Paul felt with the Philippian church. Now, Paul goes on to say, I want you to obey in my absence even more than you do in my presence. All of us find it somewhat easy to obey when there's somebody around to watch or to impress or to report on our behavior. But Paul says, I want you to be more committed to obedience and righteousness when I'm gone. I think what Paul recognized here is the tendency that all of us have to slough when the person who's holding us accountable is out of the room. If the coach is on the other side of the field or the boss is out of town, it's easy to become a bit complacent and a little less energetic and motivated about the task. But Paul says, much more in my absence be committed to putting these truths uh, into practice. This, by the way, will have a great deal of effect on what kind of videos you uh, rent when family members are out of town. It'll have a lot to do with what kind of magazines you scan and uh, airport uh, newsstands, and it will have the sideline benefit. If you are as committed to righteousness in private as you are in public, it will keep you off Ted, the Ted Koppel show and the Phil Donahue show as well. So that's Paul's initial statement here, is to commend them and appeal to them to obey. Now, what is it he wants them to obey? He gives them the first command in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation, he says. That's the first command, to work out your salvation. This verb means to achieve or to accomplish or to create or to produce. He says, produce salvation. 
Now, that indicates right off the bat that the salvation that Paul is talking about is probably not eternal salvation because that's not something that we have a hand in. God grants that to us graciously as a gift. So this is a salvation that we, Paul says, are to go about the business of creating or producing. Well, salvation simply means deliverance from something or preservation from something. What is it that Paul wants the Philippians to be delivered from or preserved from? Well, it's from a lifestyle of self-centeredness and from the disunity that results. So that's really Paul's first command. Get about the business of living and learning to live selflessly and learning to live in harmony with other believers. Work out your salvation from self-centeredness and from disunity. Now, work out is a happy translation in this case because it's such a familiar term in our culture. Just this last week, an exercise video made its way into our home and accompanying it was a very thick uh, book with illustrations and lists of exercises and in what order they are to be performed and so forth. Now, the truth, assuming for the sake of argument that the theory in this exercise video is flawless, the concepts, the principles contained in that book are of no use to anyone in the household unless they are put into practice, unless the machine, the video is popped into the machine and the exercises are done. Unless you work out, there's no benefit. And that's really what Paul is saying. Take these truths that I've given you in the first paragraph of chapter 2 and begin to work them out in your behavior. Work them out in your life. Begin to implement this truth of doing nothing from selfishness uh, in your relationships. If he were here this morning, I think Paul would say to us, uh, this is what I want you to work on today. When you go home from church with your family, as you spend time with your friends today, as you prepare to go to work tomorrow, uh, make this the truth that above all others this week you are going to work out, you are going to exercise, you are going to practice, you are going to work into your life. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. Paul says, work out the salvation that comes when you obey that command. So that's his first word. Get to work on patching up broken relationships, living a life of self-giving servanthood. Now he tells us how to do this in the end of verse 12. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a curious kind of phrase to use. Are we supposed to be afraid of the people we're to get along with? What exactly does he mean? Well, I think if you turn to 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul uses the same phrase, you'll get some idea of what he means by this expression. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and look at the first uh, five verses. I'll read these with you and then just make a comment about the significance of this phrase. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul is referring to his, his first visit to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul admits in this little paragraph that he was not a persuasive or eloquent public speaker. He was not a naturally gifted public speaker. In fact, I got one of my uh, preaching professors in seminary to finally admit that 
Paul probably would have been a B to B minus student in the homiletics classes, the preaching classes we had in seminary. Because by his own admission, he was not a gifted, persuasive, eloquent speaker. Well, how did that make him feel when he had to stand before the Corinthians the first time? He felt weak and fearful, and he literally trembled. His knees knocked, his hands shook, his throat was parched, his heart rate went up, began to perspire, just as you and I would when we have to speak in public. Now, what did that produce in Paul? Well, it produced a tremendous sense of dependence upon the power of God. Realizing his own weakness, his own insufficiency for the task, Paul cast himself wholly upon the strength and power of God. And that, he says, is what is responsible for the success of my ministry among you in Corinth. Not my own sufficiency, but the power of God at work in me. I think that's the same way Paul is using this phrase in Philippians 2. It's his reminder to us that the ability to produce this kind of self-giving lifestyle is beyond us. There's not a single person in this room that can imitate that lifestyle. That we are inadequate and our resources are insufficient for the task. So we must, in seeking to carry out this truth, do so in reverential dependence upon the power of God at work in us. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 13. Why are we to do this in reverential dependence? For, in verse 13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The verb that's translated work there in verse 13, God is at work in you, is the word from which we get the English words energy and energize. Perhaps you remember the uh, commercials that Mary Lou Ritten, Ritten did uh, several years ago, mercifully not being replayed that much anymore. But if you remember that, she bounced all over the room, and then at the end of the commercial she said, Energize me, advertisement for some battery. Well, that's the kind of concept, really, that Paul has in mind here, that God is the one who energizes us for this task, who supplies in us the power to become loving and giving Servants. He is the one who energizes us. He is the unseen source of power to accomplish this. One of our elders was teaching a sixth grade boys doctrine class, which is a challenge in and of itself. And he wanted to teach this principle to these sixth grade boys, that it's the power of God at work in us that's responsible for the Christian life and the ability to, to produce righteousness and character. So the way he did it was to bring in one of his, uh, one of his own uh, boys' remote-controlled cars. And he let these sixth-grade boys play with it for 15 minutes. They ran it all over the room, backwards, figure eights, loops, little games, little contests with this car. Then he pulled the car over to himself, turned it over, flipped open the battery compartment, and pulled out the batteries. Turned the thing over on its wheels and said, okay, now operate it. And regardless of how carefully or correctly they punched the buttons on the remote control, nothing happened because there was no power source. That's the same thing that Paul is saying to us here. That um, the key ingredient to becoming a servant, to imitating the example of Christ, is we must have an unseen source of power within us. We look just like everybody else on the outside, but Paul says the difference is that within us there is a God of power and might and strength who is at work in us to produce good pleasure. Now, the New American Standard translates that last phrase to work for His good pleasure. You notice, if you have a New American Standard, that the word His is in italics. That's not there for emphasis. That means that it's not in the original text. 
Literally, Paul says, God is at work for good pleasure. Now, Paul has used the same word, good pleasure, in chapter 1, verse 15. Why don't you flip back there just for a moment. Paul says there in verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, that is, out of self-centeredness, out of selfish, competitive motives. But some also preach Christ from goodwill. There is our word. Goodwill toward whom? Well, toward Paul, according to verse 16. The latter do it out of love. So some are preaching Christ because they love me. Now that, I think, is what Paul means here, that God is the one who is at work in us, not to do the things that please God. That's not the point. It's not His good pleasure, God's good pleasure. But He is at work in us to produce goodwill toward others. That is a loving, giving attitude of a servant toward others. Now he says that God is at work to do two things in us. Notice this carefully. God is at work both to will and to work for this kind of good pleasure, goodwill toward each other. The first thing he is at work to do in us is to will for good pleasure. I think that's because Paul understands that the first time we hear this from God, God says to us, I want you to be a loving and giving servant. I want you to learn how to set aside your rights for the people in your family and for your friends. We say, well, Lord, I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. That sounds like a major league drag in my book. Where's the fun in that? And the Lord says, okay, you don't want to. He says, that's okay. You don't have to want to do this. In fact, I'm not, God says, interested in you trying to drum up from within yourself the motivation or the desire to live like this. I realize that you can't. All I'm asking, God says, is that you express to me your willingness for me to turn you into that kind of a person. All I want is you to be willing for me to make you willing to be a servant. I think we spend a lot of time trying to drum up the motivation and the desire to obey when God says, that's my responsibility. I'll do that. I'll produce that in you. I'm at work in you to will for good pleasure. All I ask is that you give me the consent to do so. It's the way George MacDonald put it in one of his books, speaking of the importance of us simply being willing to allow God to do this work. He will carry us in his arms if we cannot walk. He will carry us in his arms until we can walk, but he will not carry us if we will not walk. Paul says that's the only part that we play is to be willing to be made willing, and God is the one who is at work to will for good pleasure. Now, the second thing that God is at work on us to do is to work for good pleasure. That is, actually produce response to this truth in life and in relationships. So what Paul is referring to here is that when the rubber meets the road this week, and this truth is tested in your life, and something happens, and your immediate response is to put your foot down and insist on getting your own way, and to insist on getting the respect that you deserve and to stand up for your own rights, or the temptation is on you to get peeved and irritated because of the way someone has treated you, or to feel sorry for yourself that nobody seems to be noticing, Paul reminds us that God is at work in us to work for good pleasure. If you turn to Him at that moment in dependence upon His power, He will enable you to respond as you should, with gentleness and kindness and patience rather than self Insistence. 
So that's the first command that Paul gives us. Work out your salvation and do so in total reverent dependence upon the power of God at work in you. Now he gives us the second command in the passage in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now by all things, Paul is still, as I mentioned, talking about the same theme. That is, conducting our relationships with each other. All the things we do in our relationships with each other are to be done without grumbling or disputing. The word grumbling is an interesting one. It's what grammarians call a word that is formed by onomatopoeia. That is, it's a word that sounds like the sound that it is describing. We have a number of words like this in English. The word hiss, for example, is formed by the same way. It sounds like the sound that a snake makes. So we call it a hiss. The word clunk again, was formed because it sounds like the sound it's describing. Uh, Or the word slam, a door slams, that's formed, the origin of that word is the same. It sounds like the word it's describing. Well, the word grumbling is like that in Greek. It literally would be pronounced ganguzmas. It's hard to detect the undercurrent of rumbling and grumbling there. So Paul says, do all things without ganguzmas. When you love each other, don't ganguzmas. Don't grumble, don't complain. I think what Paul recognizes here is that all of us have the tendency to do the right thing in this area, but with a horribly wrong attitude. In other words, we might be willing to put ourselves out for someone else around us, but we want to make it very clear to them all the time we're doing it how much it is costing us to do this. And so we kind of grumble and complain and and grouse so they will know exactly how much the servanthood is costing us. Now, Paul says, in loving each other and serving, do it without complaint. If you're a young mother and has to get up in the middle of the night to meet the needs of a nursing child, do so without complaint. Gladly, willingly give yourself away. If you give up an evening to spend a time with a friend who needs encouragement, do so without complaint. If you give up a softball game to spend time with your family, do so without complaint. If you give up a Saturday to help someone move, do so, Paul says, without complaint. This word could also be used to describe the secret whispering or mumbling that goes on between people. Not only an internal grumbling, but sort of grumbling to others. That can often be another manifestation. We may uh, give up some right or privilege and then complain to others about how we are being treated. Paul says don't do that. Don't grumble or complain. If you've got a problem with someone, go to them and talk it out between you and them. I think what Paul realizes here is that all of us are inclined, in this area in particular, to keep score. We want to kind of know whether we have been giving more than we have receiving, been receiving, and we like to keep the books balanced in this score. And if we feel that we have been giving more than we've been receiving, the response is to complain and to grumble. I know this from my own marriage and from talking to other married couples that it's perfectly possible in a situation of conflict or unrest in a marriage for both the husband and the wife to think that they are the ones who are making all the adjustments and giving up their rights. And both of them are kind of packing around a martyr complex because they've been keeping score. And it's because there's built in us, in our flesh, this tendency if we serve someone or love someone, we want to get credit for it. We want to get recognition for it and some kind of reciprocation. If we help someone in some sacrificial way, we want it written up in Christianity Today, or at least in the Cole Communique. It is illustrated uh, to me last uh, weekend, Debbie had an out-of-town guest in for the week, 
And they were off shopping Saturday afternoon, and I was uh, taking care of the kids. Well, late in the afternoon, I felt like drinking a cold Pepsi and reading Time magazine out in the shade of the backyard. Well, my kids dragged about a half dozen children's books out into the backyard. It was clear what their plans for Dad were. So I very graciously set aside my Time magazine and put one kid on each knee and started reading children's stories to them. So I remember as I was, I was reading, I said, boy, you know, it would really be neat if somebody walked into the backyard and saw this. They would think, yeah, you know, this is, this is Super Dad here. This is Phil Donahue here. And in particular, I was hoping that Debbie and her friend would walk in on me while I was doing this. But they didn't come, and they didn't come. So the last story, I really stretched that thing out. I read it as slowly as I could without boring him to tears, and nobody came. So I have to tell you about it to get any credit for it. But, but what, what it reminded me of is how inbuilt this tendency is if we do something that involves some sacrifice, even if it's small, we want some credit for it. We want some recognition for it. And if we don't get it, that's when we begin to complain. We feel unappreciated, and nobody appreciates the work that I do for this family or how much I give up for your sake, begin to complain. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputes. Because Paul understood that when we grumble, it leads inevitably to quarrels and disputes. C.S. Lewis illustrated this graphically in the little book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters, as you remember, series of letters written by Screwtape, who was a high-ranking officer in Satan's uh, employ. And he's writing to an agent on the field by the name of Slubgob, and it's Slubgob's task to trip up this young believer. And one of the ways Screwtape advises his uh, employee that you can trip up this young believer is to get him to think that he is acting unselfishly when he really is not. This is how he describes it. When once a sort of official, legal, or nominal unselfishness has been established as a rule, the most delightful results follow. In discussing any joint action, it becomes obligatory that A should argue in favor of B's supposed wishes and against his own, while B does the opposite. It is often impossible to find out either party's real wishes with luck They end by doing something that neither wants, while each feels a glow of self-righteousness and harbors a secret claim to preferential treatment for the unselfishness shown, and a secret grudge against the other for the ease with which the sacrifice has been accepted. Later on, you can venture on what may be called the generous conflict illusion. This game is best played with more than two players in a family with grown-up children, for example. Something quite trivial, like having tea in the garden, is proposed. One member takes care to make it quite clear, though not in so many words, that he would rather not, but is, of course, prepared to do so out of, quote, unselfishness. The others instantly withdraw their proposal, ostensibly through their, quote, unselfishness, but really because they don't want to be used as a sort of lay figure on which the first speaker practices petty altruisms. But... He is not going to be done out of his debauch of unselfishness either. He insists on doing, quote, what the others want. They insist on doing what he wants. Passions are aroused. Soon someone is saying, very well then, I won't have any tea at all. And a real quarrel ensues with bitter resentment on both sides. You see how it is done? Each side is indeed quite alive to the cheap quality of the adversary's unselfishness. 
and of the false position into which he is trying to force them. But each manages to feel blameless and ill-used itself. That's Paul's words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So his word to us is get serious about the business of serving each other, setting aside your rights for each other out of love, and don't keep track. Do so without complaint. Now, why should we do this? Why should we live like this? He gives us three reasons in verses 15 and 16. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. First reason he says you have to live like this is because it's right. That to do so makes you blameless, innocent, and above reproach. It's the right thing to do. And notice he says you will become this. The word prove has the idea of becoming in practice what we claim to be. In theory, you will become more and more blameless and innocent and above reproach in your relationships. The idea behind the word blameless is that you will be blameless in an external sense. That as others on the outside look at you and look at your conduct and relationships, they will begin to realize that you are not to be blamed if things cannot be patched up. In other words, they will recognize that you have done everything in your power to restore and to reconcile and to heal. Now, Paul realized not everyone was willing to to play ball. In Romans 12, he said, So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. remember once asking my daughter, I said, Jana, how come you get so many more kisses from me than I get from you? And very matter-of-factly, she said, Well, Daddy, it's because you like kissing me and I don't like kissing you. So not everybody wants to kiss back or kiss back as much as we would like. But Paul says, give yourself away and people will realize that you are blameless. If there is a breach there, it cannot be laid at your doorstep. Then he says you will become more innocent or pure or sincere. What he means by this is an internal sense of rightness. Our conscience will be clear. We'll be able to look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning and realize that we have done everything that we could to produce peace and restoration in this relationship. And last, he says, you will become someone who is above reproach, that is, in the eyes of God. We will have the satisfaction of knowing that God is pleased with how we are conducting ourselves. So that's the first reason to do it, because it's right. And in addition, it produces growth to maturity in us. Now, the second reason, he says, do this for the sake of non-Christians around you. He says, you will do this, you will be blameless, innocent, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Notice he says you will do this in the midst of this kind of generation. Not apart from it, not separate from it, not off in your holy huddles, but right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the same neighborhoods, in the same offices, in the same classrooms with members of a crooked and perverse generation. Or as Ray Steadman translates this, you will do this in the midst of crooks and perverts. William Barclay translates this phrase, uh, warped and twisted, a warped and twisted generation. And what Paul means by this expression, crooked and perverse, or warped and twisted, is that the world's view of relationships has become warped, and it's become twisted, and the, the way relationships are designed to operate has been turned on its head. 
So now the conventional wisdom in our culture is that you must look out for number one. That if you don't stick up for yourself, who will? If you don't stand up for your rights, who will? Well, Paul has an answer for that. God will do that. But that's not part of the world's wisdom. So it's turned things on its head. And as a result, Paul says, the world is in darkness. The characteristic in the world is grumbling and disputing. People complaining about their jobs, their lot in life, their marriages, quarreling with their mates, with their bosses, with their fellow workers, with their neighbors. It's a dark place. Now, Paul says, if you learn the secret in this passage, you will stand out like lights in a dark world. You will shine like the sun, the moon, and the stars in a dark world. And people will be drawn to that, and they will want to know what the source of that light can be. You have an opportunity to share with them the hope that you have found in Jesus Christ. And he gives a little hint there in the beginning of verse 16 about how we can do this, how we can appear as lights in a dark world in the midst of a warped and twisted generation by holding fast the word of life, by clinging to the word of life. I think what Paul means by this is that when the pressure is on, what we need to learn to do is to remind ourselves of what the word of life teaches. That's why I think it would be a very good thing if everybody in this room, all of us, me included, were to memorize verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Write them on a 3 by 5 card and clip it to the visor in the car, set it on the sink at home, or tape it to the mirror while we're shaving. So we could remind ourselves consistently of this truth. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. When the pressure's on, remind yourself of that truth. Hold fast the word of life, and you'll be able to behave differently than the people around you. The third reason he gives in verse 16 is, So that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. Paul says, Do it for my sake so that I might continue to have the same kind of pride in you as a fellowship that I do now, that when I stand before Christ, I'll be able to know that my life counted, that it was productive, that it was fruitful because of the quality of life and love and servanthood that is produced in you. If Paul were standing here today, he would say, do this for your spiritual leaders, do this for your staff, do this for your elders, do it for their sake. Not only because it's right, not only because it's evangelistic, but do it for the sake of your spiritual leaders, that they may have cause to rejoice and glory in you as a church. And again, to inject a personal note, nothing gives us greater pride, a healthy sense of pride as a staff and elders, than to see you as a fellowship operating this way. Loving, giving yourselves, and loving service to one another produces a tremendous sense of pride and delight in us. And Paul says, do it for us. So do it because it's right, because it's evangelistic, and do it for the sake of your leaders. Now quickly in verses 17 and 18, Paul gives us an example of this command in action. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul was under house arrest in Rome at this time. He realized that his appearance before Nero could result in his death. He compares it to his life being poured out as wine is poured out of a cup. He's aware that it could cost him his life to have served the Philippians, that for their sake he might forfeit his very life. Because of his desire to get the gospel to them, his life could come to an end. 
wasn't going to cost him just an evening here and there or a weekend or a week in the summer to go to camp. It was going to cost him his very life. And how did Paul feel about that? Serving and loving to the Philippians at the cost of his own life. Into verse 17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. In other words, what Paul had learned is that the greatest delight in life is the joy that comes from giving ourselves away to others. He had learned that, and it produced joy and delight in him. He compares himself, in this case, to a drink offering, both in pagan sacrifices and in the Jewish system at this time, when burnt offerings were offered on the altar, as the barbecue, in essence, is what it was, was taking place. Very often, a alcoholic libation would be poured out over the uh, the burnt offering as it was being burnt, as it was being consumed. And the pouring out of this burnt offering would add zest and flavor and an aroma to that sacrifice because very often the worshipers would partake of the sacrifice that had been offered. Some would go to the gods and some would go to the worshipers. It was like a marinade almost. And Paul says, that's what my life would be like. You are the sacrifice. Your lives are the ones that are being offered on the altar as a living sacrifice to God. You are the ones that are involved in service, and the word he uses there is a technical term for priestly service. So he says to the Philippians, you are the priests, and you are also the sacrifice that you were offering, and my life is like the drink offering that is poured out on top of your sacrifice and service of faith. If you ever had dinner in a fancy-pants restaurant and been served one of those flaming desserts, you get some idea of what a drink offering was like. I worked in a restaurant like that. I was going to graduate school, and one of the members of our crew was especially adept at preparing these flaming desserts. And the dessert would be brought to the table, and it would be alight with flame. And then he would take a little cup of some kind of alcoholic beverage, and he would pour it over the dessert. And it would go up in a poof of blue flame, and then it would be gone. It would be gone, but it would leave behind an aroma and a zest and a flavor. And Paul says, that's a metaphor for my life. Poured out. Poof, consumed, it's gone, but leaving behind a fragrance of a life given in service to God. And then he says to them in verse 18, I want you to rejoice in the same way. What does he mean by that? What he means, I want you Philippians to learn how to rejoice in the same way that I do, by giving your life away for others, by risking it, by throwing it away for the sake of others. So Paul says very clearly that the greatest joy in life that he had found and wants us to discover does not come in getting what we want, but in giving to others what they need. That's where true contentment is found. It's not by hoarding our time and our energy and our resources and our money and our material possessions, but by flinging them away to meet the needs of other people. Not in getting what we want, but in giving others what they need. As I mentioned, Debbie and I had a house guest for the last week. And she's a striking illustration to me of how God can use us as servants if that's our desire, if we're simply willing to be made willing. The day before she left to come visit us, she was doing some shopping, trying to find something to read on the plane while she flew to Boise, and she found a little book that looked interesting. And so she picked it up just to have something to read on the plane. When she arrived in Boise to spend time with us, she met a friend of ours whose situation happened to be the situation that was described precisely in this book. It was a book on counseling and psychology. And uh, by meeting this friend of ours, she was able to spend a number of hours with this woman and was a great encouragement to her. 
and just by God's grace just happened to have picked up the very book she needed to help this woman the day before she left to come. She had no idea that was coming, but that's God and His graciousness to give us opportunities to serve if that's our desire. Now, I know that she had a good time with us. She got to play with my kids, for instance, and uh, went to a couple of movies, went out to eat. She enjoyed her week of vacation, but I will guarantee you that the highlight of her vacation was the opportunity to give herself away in loving service to this woman and be an encouragement and a help to her. She had learned to experience joy, find it in the same place that Paul found it. Again, the screw tape letters, uh, screw tape and discuss, describes this truth about his enemy, our Lord. It says, when he talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I am afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that sometimes we find hard words in the Scripture. We realize at times the concept of being loving servants is not appealing to us. It appears to be drab and colorless. But Lord, we see in Paul's case the kind of joy, genuine, deep-seated, rich, mellow, full joy that can be ours by giving ourselves to others around us in loving imitation of their own example. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would make us willing and able to be these kind of servants. We confess to you, Lord, this morning as a fellowship that we are willing to be made willing. We are willing to be made into these kind of servants. Pray, Father, as we sing now and as we partake of communion in just a moment, that you will use this time to be a time of worship and a time of prayer on our behalf, that these songs would not be just idle songs, but would express the prayer of our hearts as your people. Amen.